Welcome to Black and Red All Over, an Anglican podcast where we share and celebrate the rich heritage of the Anglican way as found in our canonical texts and conforming theologians. I'm Richard Tarsitano, pastor of Trinity Anglican Church in beautiful Connorsville, Indiana, and I'm joined by Stephen Wedgworth, pastor of Christ Church Anglican in South Bend, Indiana. Good morning, Stephen. How are you? Doing great, Richard. Glad to be back with you. Hope you had a Merry Christmas. Very, very Merry. How much snow did you get down there? You know, that we did not get too much, not nearly as much as you guys did. Um, we're we're kind of right below the really seriously worry about it. But in the grand tradition of our time here in Indiana, it did snow right before uh, Christmas Eve services. Uh, so we were out there with shovels, but we, we got it. We got it clear. Excellent. How about you guys? We avoided the um, doom scenario. They had predicted, you know, something like 18 inches going into um, the week of Christmas. Um, and we really only got about four. So oh, that's we, not bad. No, we no, can that's... handle four around here. Yeah, it's not not a big problem. We, we piggyback off of the, the city as well. So we're right downtown. So they, they are very, very good about clearing off roads and pathways. We just had to worry about our sidewalks. And so we were fine. And it also always uh, makes all the good uh, Anglican hymns that talk about snow. If you actually have some snow around it, it makes them hit home a little bit more, I guess. That's right. This is my first time ever to get to do that. You know, I've been in the South and then we were in Vancouver, but no snow there either. So yeah, yeah bleak midwinter hits a little bit harder when you're uh, just got done shoveling snow. <laughs> Absolutely, absolutely, <laughs> and we also use the uh, the benedicity throughout Advent, so it has. Yep, the, we do as well. Uh, yeah, the ice and the frost. So. Yep, all of it praising the Lord, um, which again one has to uh, remember. As, That's right. You have to it. you have to force yourself to say that part sometimes. <laughs> That's right. That's right. Well, this was our first year with heat in the church as well, so uh, um, that also was. Uh, uh, made it easier to 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 to, to pray the benedicity. Very good. Um, well, I you probably noticed I I stirred up a bit of interest, a little little bit of uh, energy on Anglican Twitter uh, by wanting to talk about the formularies, and um, it was two things that got people's attention. I was talking about the homilies, but by way of the articles, homilies, and uh, I was struck by a number of Anglican people. Um, they don't follow the articles or they don't, they don't hold the articles as an absolute doctrinal authority. And so that was a, a good motivator for us to get back together and start our conversation on the articles. But I wanted to ask you, Richard, just your knowledge of the American tradition. Um, to what degree are the 39 articles a doctrinal standard for American Episcopals or Anglicans? Well, there's sort of two big different periods. Um, yeah, you, you mentioned Twitter. Um, and I always remind people that uh, Twitter is not the real world. Um, and uh, there are tiny minorities of strange people on there um, who can sort of present themselves as being authoritative um, and, and you whittle it down and it's, you know, some 20 year old person in their house who's, who, 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 who read Newman once or something along those lines. I mean, that it's, it's a weird space for that. I mean, in some ways, it's good that it amplifies interesting voices. Uh, in some ways, uh, it can be challenging to figure out 
uh, particularly for outsiders, what are all these people arguing about and what, what is actually happening? Um, so in, in terms of the American scene, one finds very early on in the, the 1789 uh, convention um, when, you know, the American Anglican way is decimated by the Revolutionary War. You've got people coming together to try to figure out how to be uh, an Anglican church um, that has been disconnected by war um, from the, 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 the church in England. Um, but one of the things they, they immediately decide at that convention is that um, they will be, uh, uh, what will be used as the, the standard of, of faith and worship is the Book of Common Prayer, um, the ordinal, uh, and the Articles of Religion. Um, that's immediately decided upon. Now, it took some time to figure out what articles they would use. The assumption in the 1789 text um, is that either they'll have uh, an adoption of the uh, English articles or there might be some revision. And there were some attempts at revision. Um, but when they were brought forward um, later on in 1801 and people looked at them, the only thing anyone could agree on was that they were much, much worse than the originals. Um, and so they decided in 1801 to adopt with very minor changes, um, the same articles as you would find in, in the 1662 uh, Book of Common Prayer. There are a few differences, but 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 very, very minimal, um, and certainly not in the directions that controversialists tend, tend to go. Um, there's no doubt that there's still the evidence of uh, of the faith and practice of a reformed Catholic church. Um, so yeah, so and, and so then you have a long period of time where this is just the, the standard doctrine in which um, uh, theologies are, are, are done, theological works are done, um, in which people, when they sort of think through systematic theology, they're always working through, in some ways, a, a connection back to the 39 articles um, as, as a touchstone and a, and a stepping off point. Um, and that is really kind of the orthodoxy in America up until um, the very late 19th century and early 20th century, when you get a, a strong push um, for both uh, modernism um, and also uh, a, a strong push of effect of the Tractarians and the ritualists and in looking for some answer um, in their own minds against what they saw as, as modernism. Um, mm -hmm. And this, this, and this develops further in all sorts of, ways and then mixes in with the ecumenical movement which saw um that if uh, the more the the Anglican way could be like rome or the east the more possible the higher possibility of some kind of reunion could be so all that mixes together um and makes for some pretty muddled ideas um is it true that church discipline in terms of the enforcement of uh, of the Anglican ways formularies in the 20th century and late 19th century broke down in a big way. Oh yeah, that's absolutely true. Um, I just don't know why a person would necessarily be excited about that. Or look at the carnage of American Christianity and say that what we need less of, we need we actually need less church discipline, um, not more. And in many ways, that's a beautiful thing about the articles is that they they clear up so many things and make uh, make it much easier to proclaim the the truth of the gospel and, and joyously. Rather than continuously argue over 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 uh, uh, pieces of, of of church history um, forever. Yeah, the my you know me being relatively new to the Anglican world, I, I've only been exposed on a <clears throat> firsthand level through um, 
sort of the ACNA, but particularly a version, a variety of ACNA that's very interested in reclaiming a more historic view. Uh, definitely GAFCON, Cairo Covenant kind of influence. Those documents single out the formularies as being authoritative. So, so that's always been my experience. And I just thought, well, who knows about that American history? It, it seems like it's always been kind of kind of weird or kind of weak. Uh, that's my bias, of course. But I you know, did a little digging. And um, yeah, that 1789 Book of Common Prayer, they have the third in articles. Yes. And then there, there are a few articles that you can tell they have some issue with. And so they note that. And so I think it's the one on the uh, general councils. They say that mm -hmm. was... Uh, historic, you know, no, no longer applicable to our time. And the article on the homilies, I was really surprised by this. They say we do receive the homilies for doctrine, for morals, and for piety. Uh, we just don't receive them for their historic and legal uh, and sort of cultural custom statements or, or any inaccuracies that may be in them. Um and I thought, well, boy, I could live with that. Yes, that's right. <laughs> yeah, you know, it'll take the doctrine, the morals, and the piety. Great. And, you know, the other stuff we can we can debate. Um, and so I thought, well, that's actually still a pretty strong reception um, of the articles. You know, whether or not, as you say, they they enforced it, that's another topic. But by and they did for a long time, yeah. And by and and I would say also that sometimes people draw the distinction between subscription and 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 uh, and well, people will say, well, they the difference in the English context, um, um, starting the 1604 canons, one had to had to subscribe and sign for them when one uh, graduated from the universities and when when one become a became a cleric. Um, but a, a functionally, every single clergyman would have um, said they were you know up you know would have sworn to uphold the canons. Um, and the canons of the Protestant Episcopal Church, United States of America, said um, that the articles of religion were to be used. Um, so functionally, yeah. that that's not that super different, really. Right. And the the very fact that you would note which articles you are maybe altering or taking some issue with versus those articles that you are not. Right. I mean, right there, that tells you the the role of the articles. <laughs> Um, exactly. if the articles, if the articles were not authoritative, then you would not need to make such a statement. It would be understood that you can take or leave as you wish. Right. So, and, and that's a very, I think a very anachronistic way to look at the way people thought about documents at the time. Mm -hmm. Um, I, I think to the, it is a weird reading back into the, the sort of the triumph of individual autonomy back into um, the past and pretending as if that was the way people thought about things is, is a strange thing to do sometimes. And people do it all the time, um, particularly those who are very averse to any kind of authority over them other than themselves. So I thought we should just get into the articles now, talk about some of the content, because um, if it is true that many American Anglicans haven't been using them, uh, then the idea of, hey, let's bring them back and let's let's make them really mean something um, that could catch people by surprise or uh, they may be intimidated by that. Um, so it, it's worth getting into it and talking about it. And then for those who are um, already on board with the idea, who, who are for the articles, uh, they also will, will want to know the details and be comfortable with the theology. 
And so the only way to do that is to just get in there, read them and talk about them. That's right. Did you want to do a, a, a quick, very quick sort of historical uh, background on, on where the articles come from? I, I don't mind giving a little bit of short, short, short version of that. Yeah, I know that'd probably be helpful. Um, I don't have all my dates memorized because <laughs> you know, I uh, have all the I have all the Presbyterian dates still in my brain, but but I remember the the idea of it, you know, Cranmer and then alterations and then re readopted. So, but yeah, why don't you explain what you have? Super super quick, and there's a lot of fascinating history here one can go into, um, and there's some really good introductions to the 39 articles one can find in the the you know. As I say, you know, the 39 Articles are incredibly important for Anglican systematic theology. So when one looks for systematic theology in Anglicanism, one usually will find um, expositions of the 39 Articles as a really good place to start. Um, and so uh, one I have in front of me right now is uh, 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 an, an enormous one, and, and in many ways, a very interesting connection between England and America, um, Harold Brown's um, Exposition of the 39 Articles, which was printed in England in 1850 um, and then reprinted in America in 1890 um, and distributed widely uh, and used. And, and again, uh, uh, one doesn't necessarily have to agree with everything, all of Brown's uh, uh, ideas, um, but he is exhaustive in terms of his attempt to show the uh, reform Catholicity uh, of, of, of the Articles. Um, but he is, he is actually a really useful short history at the beginning of them. Um, where he talks about how there was originally articles drawn up um, in 1552 uh, by mostly Cramer and Ridley. Um, he has a very fascinating part in his book where he talks about um, when we're trying to interpret the articles and the prayer book, it makes sense, uh, as he puts it, to look at the writings of Cramer and Ridley, uh, not as if they were uh, infallible or, or that their private opinions are binding on us, but as ways of explaining clauses and and language they use it can be really really useful i think brown is is right on there um but um of course you have the the break the the break in continuity with uh, bloody mary coming to the throne um but then once uh elizabeth uh is uh crowned um and archbishop parker becomes archbishop canterbury um and you have uh, uh bishop jewel um the articles are revised i say under the editorship uh, of of jewel and then by convocation uh, which is a collection, uh, 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 basically sort of a, a church government body, who uh, went over them again. The, the numbers, you know, Cramer's originally were 42, and there's some, some are combined, some are shortened, um, and there's uh, a, a strong uh, uh, editorship that goes through that. And then you finally get the, uh, the articles that are put forward in 1571 um, and are uh, accepted and uh, Clergy, um, and as I mentioned, interestingly, those who were graduating from Oxford and Cambridge also had to subscribe to the articles. Um, uh, mm. And uh, uh, and matter of fact, I think I have here the. Uh, well, no, I don't. We don't read it up. But again, the uh, part of the what, what one finds in the canons of the of the English Church is that uh, anyone who denies that these are. Uh, uh, amenable to Catholic theology um, and meaning, and of course, the universal church's beliefs uh, and the apostolic faith um, is anathema. Hmm. And so uh, 
But that 1571 articles are, are, are in essentialities the same as what one finds uh, in the 1552s. There are, are differences here back and forth, but I highly recommend if you want to know more about that, um, then, um, as I say, Brown's introduction, um, which I believe actually North American Anglican printed or has on, online, um, but there are other editions you can find online, online of it. Um, but essentially, that's what one finds in the, in the 1662 um, and uh, has been the, the standard uh, as I say, for for now, uh, five hundred years. <clears throat> yeah, isn't it? It's sort of the case that you've got the initial articles when you have Cranmer still alive and Edward on the throne. Then they're sort of you know taken off the table entirely because of Mary, and then they're recovered yes. by Elizabeth. And you can see the the back and forth because Elizabeth, there's one article that she doesn't really want because. Perhaps it's a little too antagonistic to the Lutherans. That's at least one story. Um, but that that article eventually survives. Uh, right. That's the one on uh, the wicked not eating the Lord's body in the supper. Um, and to me, that history is very important because, yeah, there's a diversity. There's the, the debates. But, but then you can see how they had a resolution. <laughs> you know, You're absolutely actually, right. They the, came the... to some conclusion. The, the 29th article, there are, there was a back, and, and this also speaks to the relationship between the crown and convocation, um, between the between the crown and and her and the bishops. Um, that yes, you're absolutely right. That that Elizabeth had, had crossed out part of the 29th article in in her in her in, in her revision that she sent back to convocation. Um, and you're absolutely right. The, the reason being that um, there was still a hope of a pan-Protestant church. There was still a hope of a, of a union. Of, of the Protestant churches, um, and there was a, a strong goal not to alienate um, the Lutherans, if it, if possible. Um, but convocation kept it in, um, and and um, and eventually Elizabeth, of course, uh, signed off on it. Once convocation, um, uh, they didn't just, as I say, it's important to recognize that her role um, as governor was not such that she could um, just steamroll anything she wanted through. Um, and uh, right. in this case, took the advice of her godly bishops. Yeah, no, that's really, really yeah. good information. <clears throat> um, and and then, yeah, it's 1662. They are are definitively recovered, incorporated and um, are, are the standard from that point on. Um, right. Again, that, that, that recovery comes after the for those of those out there who aren't aren't all up on this, that recovery comes after the English Civil War. Um, so you have these these yeah. these periods in which the 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 prayer book and the Anglican way are are sort of subsumed um, by first by by Mary and then of course the uh, uh, by Cromwell. So once that is all figured out, <laughs> um, but you know some of us would say by divine providence, um, the the prayer book is restored. <laughs> so yeah, so at least um, by that point, it's it's clearly the doctrinal boundary marker. Um, it exists, would you say, um, it is in conjunction with the prayer book. It, it is seen as compatible, and they're both interlocking standards of authority. I think that's absolutely right. And again, that that's that's the way that they're treated. Um, for instance, I mentioned um, by the Protestant Episcopal Church at its founding um, as, as being uh, the marks of being an Anglican. Yeah. Yeah, so I, I think that that's that's very much the way it, it it becomes. Yeah, 
Yeah, sometimes there are debates, you know, which one um, is more authoritative or, or which one would have been earlier historically. Um, but it seems that both the articles and the prayer book um, and then the ordinal as well, um, they're they're all going through similar experiences of, you know, people make some changes. There's some some debate, some editing, uh, but they eventually are um, adopted in the form we have them now. Um, and held as authoritative uh, formularies. That's right. I mean, I mean, Cranmer and Ridley are the primary authors of the of in, of, of the of the fifteen fifty two and of both prayer book and articles. Right. So, I mean, the idea that these these are and the fifteen fifty two is essentially the prayer book one has in the sixteen sixty two, and uh, the articles are, are you know again they're revisions and changes made in them, but they they both are coming from. The same place um and so it only makes sense that they would be uh supporting the same the same faith and doctrine yeah okay <clears throat> i point that out very different backgrounds and varieties but they share that common assumption that the articles sort of represent one flavor one face of anglicanism uh, and the prayer book represents a, a different variety and of course some like the articles others like the prayer book but they, they share that kind of view um and i think that the view itself is part of the problem that yeah we don't want to play these off against each other but we want to take them together yeah and i think that's that's definitely what one gets when for instance i mean it, it even reverberates out right so i mean when, when you have in the 1560s when jewel writes his apology of the church of england um he just, you know, he he's also involved in the editorship of the final version of the Thirty Nine Articles, um, and it's and it's all with, you know, he's writing theology with that as as his background. Um, and one thing we didn't mention is a lot of this, um, particularly that final form, um, is happening as a response to the Council of Trent, um, the Roman the the Roman Council. Um, which finishes up in uh, 1563, I believe. Um, and so in many ways, the Articles of Religion become the official uh, rebuttal um, for Trent, which is a fascinating detail as well, which, which also helps us to understand some of their um, their necessity and what they were trying to accomplish. Yeah. Okay, well, that's good. Let's let's get into the content. Yeah. Um, so there are 39 <laughs> articles. Easy to remember that. Um, and um, if we went through every single article, then, you know, we'd have a year or more worth of episodes. Uh, if we went into detail. So so we're, we're not going to. Um, I know that Gerald Bray in uh, his book, um, Anglicanism, Reform and Catholic Tradition, he breaks it up into sort of three sections. He has the what he calls the Catholic articles, which means um, shared, you know, would, would keep a faith tradition that is common across even Protestant Catholic boundaries, at least to some degree. And then he moves from there into the the sort of Protestant Reformation articles. And these are articles that um, would be common or, or largely shared amongst all Protestants, but not not necessarily distinctive and limited to England. Um, and then he moves towards the the those that are particular and most kind of quote unquote Anglican, rather than anything else. 
Um, and I think that's sort of a helpful way to look at it. There may be a few articles that don't quite follow those rules. You know, we can see as we go through them um, an article here or there that, well, it's in the Catholic section, but it obviously pretty Protestant. <laughs> um, <laughs> but for the most part, that's a decent way to look at it. They kind of start with the most universal and they're getting more and more particular as they go. That's right. That's right. And again, some of those lines get blurred because, I mean, again, again, the drum that's being beat by the reformers is that they are Protestant to be Catholic. Um, and so right. some of those, you're absolutely right. Some of those, some of those lines are, can be, can be fascinating, but they, <laughs> they see, you know, what we kind of define now as kind of Protestant doctrines as being a, a retrieval of, of the apostolic faith. So. Yeah. So I thought we'd try to just get through the first eight. Um, as I said, we won't, won't go into extreme detail necessarily. We, we can only, you know, talk about what we have time for, but things that come up that are of interest, we think are particularly important, um, especially for contemporary concerns, certainly we'll want to mention. Um, and you'll notice that articles one through eight basically cover the Trinity, um, which includes a bit of Christology, um, and then the, the doctrine of revelation, the canon of scripture, and then the, the three creeds that are treated to be most authoritative amongst the later uh, creedal tradition. So that's what's covered in the first eight articles. Um, now, one thing that got my attention right away, Richard, is that contrary or different from the Westminster Confession, which was my previous one, the articles start with the Trinity. That's yes. the, first, the first affirmation. Whereas uh, the Westminster, as I'm remembering, it's more starting with the knowledge of God, you know, how you would come to know him, um, which gets you closer to um, sort of natural revelation and scripture. And then it moves farther into the doctrines after that. Do you think that this was a conscious choice to start with the Trinity rather than the Bible? Um, is that super significant or or is it just this was the order of things on their mind at the time and uh, maybe not logical, but just of contemporary interest? Well, it is an interesting choice um, because there's the you mentioned the Westminster starts with the knowledge of God. Um, so does Aquinas. Right. He hmm. starts there. Um, uh, here, though, I the is in. uh I'm leaning a bit on on the secondary literature um, because I'm not as familiar with the Lutheran. Uh, I mean, I've obviously read them, but not as not as uh, uh, as familiar with all with the with the Lutheran uh, uh, confessional documents. Uh, but my understanding is a big reason why the uh, uh, Cranmer in 1552 starts with the Trinity um, is because that also mirrors the uh, uh, where the Lutherans start as well. Um, um, and so it's an it's a helpful bit of continuity. Uh, between those two. And I think, I think that's probably the main reason he starts there. Um, but yes, you're absolutely right. It, it is a choice. I, I mean, I, I also noticed it's kind of a choice systematic theologies have to make sometimes too, one will find. Right. I mentioned Aquinas uh, already, but it's usually someone's going to make that, make that call where, where, where they go. And, and sometimes it can be based on their confessional allegiance. Um, but sometimes it, it can, it can be a bit of a surprise where, whether they start with God or how we know God. Right. Yeah. And I do think one one approach <clears throat> shows you more of a system idea. You know, you have to have the first block before you can get to the second block, um, whereas another one may just be um, 
kind of loke communes, you know, common places. And the thing that is maybe most important um, to the Christian experience. It's interesting you mentioned the interesting you mentioned the Lutherans. I just Googled because I was just curious. The Belgic Confession. So this would be a Calvinist confession yeah. in the Netherlands. It also starts with God before oh, right. before the knowledge of God. So um, this may have been a, a fashion or a convention of the the time, right? Because yeah. what Westminster is basically hundred years later. That's right. Um, so so this may just reflect the more common um, kind of first second generation reformation approach um whereas you know by 100 years maybe they're um because of the changes in schooling and methods they either are reverting you know to thomas or yeah. or are doing something different in the own right but yeah so i think it's probably right they're they're mirroring and paralleling what the other protestant groups are at the time are doing yeah very good I think that's right. And that's sometimes lost in people's takes on, on the Anglican way. Um, uh, but there, there, I mean, one thinks of Cranmer's correspondence with Calvin and, and, and also, you know, the have bringing over Booser and Vermigli, um, that there was a strong push within uh, uh, the church of England uh, to create uh, uh, kind of a, I, you know, people use that term via media uh, uh, way too often, um, but to really create the best Reformed Catholic, best Protestant church um, in the world, and and really benefit from 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 continental thinkers um, yeah. as well, and, and I think that that's a I think that's a strength of the Incan way, and also strength of the formularies that come out of it. Yeah. All right. So Article One, the Trinity. Probably modern readers, um, if they're if they're already this far along with us, you know, they, they probably already hold to the Trinity. <laughs> so, <laughs> um, so this one, I think they're going to be quick to affirm. Um, it's a fairly simple affirmation. You know, I think it's giving you just the basics. One God. You'll notice classical theology, of course. Um, no body, no parts, no passions. Um, infinite power, wisdom, and goodness, maker and preserver of all things. Um, and then it affirms in the unity of the Godhead, there are three persons, uh, all of one substance, power and eternity, Father, Son, and Holy Ghost. So um, succinct, kind of classic Trinitarian statement. Uh, a few points maybe of you know more specific theology, but not overly detailed, right? It's, it's right. sort of a general statement yeah it, it's something that you know obviously like a Sokinian couldn't agree with there's nothing an Arian could agree with there's nothing for instance uh, a Mormon could agree with um it sets the the boundaries of classical theism uh, uh quite well and as you say very succinctly mm -hmm. now if if you want more details Richard are we totally lost and we don't have any more Trinitarian doctrine <laughs> or no. will that show up later <laughs> <laughs> yes, very much so. Um, so one of the great advantages of the uh, the 1662 uh, and one of the the, the real tragedies of the uh, of the American perfect tradition um, was a loss to the Athanasian Creed. Um, you'll notice that in the Articles of Religion here, we mentioned three creeds. Well, of course, in the English Articles, it mentions the Apostles, uh, Nicene, uh, and Athanasian Creed. Um, and you know, the 1662 International Edition uh, maintains that and, and keeps the Athanasian Creed going, um, but they were for very, very bad reasons. Um, the, uh, the, the 
the men in 1789 and further on chose not to include the Athanasian Creed. Um, and there is your, you know, as the prayer book prescribes, it's read um, 13 times a year, including on Christmas and Easter, um, the days in which people are going to, you know, receive uh, the Holy Communion. Um, they are, they with the, with the Presbyterian cleric, they are, um, repeating uh, what is essentially uh, uh, an a, a, a compilation of everything it means to believe um, in the Catholic faith of the Trinity, um, the humanity and divinity of Christ, uh, and the reality of eternal judgment. So, yeah, so that's, that's something everybody would have been saying, and it is a much, much longer version of this. Yeah, I think it is good to keep that in mind, because... Um... If, for instance, someone wanted to hold to a more uh, revisionist doctrine of the Trinity, but claim that they could affirm everything in Article 1. Now, of course, they, they would have to probably be redefining words, but right. if they tried that, then, yeah, you just take them to Article 8. Yeah. <laughs> and, yeah, they've got to deal with both of them. Um if any listeners out there aren't um, familiar, uh, the reference to passions, that's a, a classical theology term. It doesn't mean affections. It doesn't mean that God is out the capacity to care and to love, um, or that even he might, to, to some degree, whatever is possible, you know, sympathize with his people. The scripture uses that kind of language. But rather, um, passion here is an external force that would act upon you uh, really apart from your control. That's the idea. Yeah. So if your, your passions come over you as a man, that's usually when you're going to do something you regret, right. <laughs> you know, a crime of passion, that sort of language. Right. Or anger. We could be anger. a, a disordered passion. Huh? Yeah. Yeah. The word, it has a root for passive or, or so that means you're, you're not active also uh, is the word uh, where suffering comes from, you know, the mm -hmm. passion of Christ is suffering. Um, so yes, God in his divine nature, he's not um, acted upon from the outside, you know, things outside of him don't, don't change him, overcome him and yeah. compel him to do this. It's right. And don't change him. So Which is really important. If, 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 if all your hope and trust is in the promises of God, you don't want a God who changes his mind. Absolutely. <laughs> so yeah, people are like, oh, I, I really wish this doctrine was different. No, you don't, actually. Because then it would mean all the covenants are up, up for grabs day to day, and we're in real trouble. Yeah. <laughs> all right. Well, then we can move to Article 2. This is your, your statement about the person of Christ. Again, it's classic stuff. It's going to have to be consistent with Nicaea, with the Athanasian Creed. The Son, which is the word of the Father, begotten from everlasting of the Father, the very and eternal God of one substance with the Father, took man's nature in the womb of the Blessed Virgin of her substance, so that the two whole and perfect natures, that is to say the Godhead and manhood, were joined together in one person, never to be divided, whereas one Christ, very God and very man. Now, if I stopped right there, that, that would be perhaps what most people think of as Christology, you know, classic two natures. 
But but notice it actually doesn't stop there. (laughs) This article goes forward into his work. So this God, this God man, um, very God and very man who truly suffered was crucified, dead and buried to reconcile his father to us and to be a sacrifice, not only for original guilt, but also for all actual sins of man. All of that in the the same article, number two. Yeah, I, and I, I think I think that's great. Um, um, a, it's it's classic Chalcedonian Christology. I mean, it's a Chalcedonian definition, um, and then it also works in that the talking about his humanity in terms of um, what's sometimes called the the economic Trinity, right? Like there's that like the the mission of the Son of Man, the Son of God, um, in the incarnation um, is wrapped up into uh, what it means that that god became man Mm -hmm. and you also have a bit of atonement doctrine yes Uh, i've i've seen this said um even by by theologians i I otherwise would greatly respect and sympathize with they would say that you know there's not an anglican doctrine of the atonement (laughs) Uh, you know the articles don't really single out atonement but here it is article two (laughs) Second one. Yeah, yeah, I know. I know. <laughs> um, and so we, we have yeah, that Chalcedonian Christology, all the classics, um, you know, metaphysics and ontology and high flying theology. Um, and then it says a sacrifice. Um, not only for original guilt, so it includes original guilt. That's one yep. of the things he sacrificed for. And then also all actual sins of men. And so there's clearly some notion of a propitiation, uh, yes. substitutionary atonement here, um, that Christ has reconciled us to the Father through that death. Yes, 100%. Um, it should also, not be an enormous surprise, but yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, right. And uh, how could you read the communion service and, and miss that, right? <laughs> right. Um, I, I when I first started reading the the communion liturgy, I I almost smirked a little bit because of how repetitious it gets on this point. You know? yes. <laughs> he, Just in case you missed it, yes. Yeah, his one perfect oblation, sacrifice, and offering <laughs> that he once made for all. <laughs> right, right. It's just banging the Hebrews' drum. Yeah, um, yeah, yeah, hundred percent. And then you, you include the exhortation in that as well. Um, and yeah, it's uh, especially the third exhortation um, is just, yeah, there's, there's no there's no running away from that. And again, I, I, you know, people say those kinds of things, um, Stephen, I, I sometimes like something, you know, like sort of the classic thing where something will be said in a secondary source and then someone else will say it and then people will start saying it. And it sort of becomes these as people are trying to create their own sort of taxonomy in their head of various traditions. these things just sort of get tacked on as to simplify things in their own brains. Um, And I think this is one of those classic examples of that, where any scrutiny of the, of the actual documents, you go, what are people talking about? Yeah. (laughs) 
Yeah, that was a point when I was uh, making the move and I, I came across that. I said, well, if this is true, that Anglicans don't have a Doctrine of Atonement, then that's a huge problem. You know, we're going to have to stop the whole whole process here, guys. <laughs> but, uh, you know, as I looked at the old, docu old documents, well, actually, no, here it is. It's, it's quite strong. Um, also, it wouldn't be historical, right? It would be, right. It would be extremely weird yes. for a Protestant body not to have taken an interest in the atonement. <laughs> yes, very weird. <laughs> um, but again, I think that's that sort of anachronistic casting back the history, people's own perceptions, um, and oftentimes built around their experiences with churches that are very, 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 very different um, because of, of what the 20th century um, did to uh, American religion in general. Yeah. Yeah. Right next is the descent into hell. Now, this kind of surprises uh, some readers, including myself. You know, that gets in a whole article. <laughs> yeah. um, but then it doesn't say much, does it? No. <laughs> you get these two big paragraph articles, and now you just have this one little sentence. Um, As Christ died for us and was buried, so also is it to be believed that he went down into hell. Period. <laughs> So what's being said here? Why is this here, Richard? It's a great question. Um, again, I think it's it's a, a you see it a lot. Um, I mean, uh, Vermigli writes about it uh, as a uh, uh, it's 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 a point of contention, um, and and there's huge differences in the way not just Lutherans and Reformed think through it, but just even within sort of sort of classic Reformed writers, like, you know, Vermigli and, and, and Calvin kind of fall on different sides of this particular issue. Um, though, again, you could, the, 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 uh, the, the functional difference um, uh, in many ways. I mean, because there, there's a certain sense in which we are doing a little bit of speculative theological working in this. I, I mean, uh, the, the scriptures are not super uh, vocal on all of this because it's kind of not our business in many ways. Um, but this does make a strong uh, case um, um, uh, for the descent of Christ into hell. Um, but there are lots of different ways people interpret that. I mean, uh, even within the Anglican divines, um, you get the, um, the, you know, Christ goes directly into the actual hell, that sort of harrowing of hell that one reads about in sort of orthodoxy and is pulling people out. You've got the interpretations that Jesus goes into um, uh, sort of the, uh, to the the bosom of Abraham, to, uh, where, the, where the where the fathers are, and uh, and and welcomes them in, and then you know uh, preaches against the people across in in hell. Um, you've got uh, interpretations where Jesus you know, suffers in such a way. Um, that it's as if he went to hell, uh, and, and right. I think in many ways the 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 article is not, uh, uh, it, you know, in its simple grammatical take that that hell that that inferna of of uh, uh, in in the Latin, um, I I think you know you'll see sometimes it listed as sort of the, the land of departed spirits. Um, as a way of of, of of giving the opportunity for that uh, the Abraham's bosom uh, interpretation, uh, I, I think the good news is how all that goes down uh, is not the end all be all of our understanding. Um, I think the, we just mentioned the atonement is the much more important part of this. 
yeah. but I think it does leave some options open uh, for 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 a person uh, to, to to faithfully hold to you know what best we know from Scripture. Yeah. So the line, you know, it shows up in the Apostles' Creed. Uh, sure. Crucified, dead, and buried, descended into hell. So everyone's going to hear that. They're going to have to say it in church. So that's that's one reason <laughs> you're going to yeah. have to discuss what it means. And so, yeah, what is hell? That was a big question. Um, is he descending into the you know fiery judgment where people are punished? Uh, is he merely descending into the abode of the dead? The you know, that's that's. Dead, a yeah, and it's so interesting to know that those were all the debates, and this is how they answer. <laughs> this is how they answer. So this is this is kind of this is a classic. You know, you want to see a compromise or a consensus compromise statement. <laughs> this would actually be a great case in point, right? Where you know, hey, just say this much. And you're good. Yeah. <laughs> um, we, my family uses a Christian health sharing ministry instead of health insurance. And they've got this clause about smoking. You know, you're not to smoke. And then it says, right. except for occasional celebratory occasions. Right. <laughs> uh, and, and someone, uh, I'm hearing this from a person who had worked for that company. So it could be a little bit, you know, massage for rhetorical purposes but still they said that the question was brought to them well, what qualifies you know don't don't we need to get more specific what is an occasional celebratory life event and the response was no 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 that's perfectly specific uh, that's all we're gonna say <laughs> right <laughs> um and that's what I, I think about here, right? You know, yeah. this is all you need to say. You say this much and you are orthodox. <laughs> yeah right. And other views can be permitted privately. <laughs> yeah, and, and I think that's you know when you're when you're dealing with, and that's another thing we didn't touch too hard on. But when you're dealing with you know a national church, a church full of uh, of real live human beings, um, you want to be uh, make sure that you know peace isn't sacrificed for the sake of truth, but where where peace can be can be found, let peace reign. Yeah. <laughs> Um, and historically, you can see pretty pretty important Anglicans who take different views here. Um, oh yeah, um, there's a, a bishop. Um, his name is uh, Bishop Thomas Bilson, who was actually clo close with Queen Elizabeth. He took the very robust harrowing of hell view. You know, Christ yeah. goes down into hell and literally clears house. Um, but then you get to um, later later bishops like Usher, uh, Thomas Morton, and they're taking a much more limited view. You know, and basically it's the abode of the dead and it's more yeah. of a proclamation of a work already completed, you know, that kind of a thing. Mm -hmm. um, so you, you have a range of views even amongst uh, impeccably orthodox Anglican divines. That's right. right. But it is, I mean, I think that's a, a freeing thing here. Like, you know, the, the articles of religion are very much a, a kind of, uh, I had a great professor um, uh, in seminary, um, uh, Dr. Ryan Reeves, um, he, who taught church history and theology, and one of one of the things he liked to talk about was the the creeds were uh, a, a fence around a playground, ah. um, and as long as you didn't go outside the fence, you'd be fine, and you could play within the playground, and that's what you wanted to do. Um, again, this is a, a very much the articles operate in a similar way; they're a fence, and within that fence, you're fine. If you go outside the fence, you're going to get hit by a car, kid. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> All right, Article 4, the resurrection. 
again, classic traditional creedal stuff here. Christ yeah. did truly rise again from death, took again his body with flesh, flesh bones, and bones. Yeah. And all things appertaining to the perfection of man's nature, wherewith he ascended into heaven and there sitteth until he returned to judge all men at the last day. Yeah, body. And then in case there's any debate about what that could mean, right? Flesh, yes. bones, yes. and all things pertaining to the perfection of man's nature. <laughs> it's great. Yeah. And it's important. Um, I, 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 because there is a, 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 I run into it all the time. Um, you start talking about the bodily resurrection um, and, and, and people just do not hear that in their churches. And it's fascinating. And they have no hope. Their hope is that there'll be a disembodied spirit in heaven forever. Not that they'll be like their Lord with body, flesh, bones, and all things pertaining. That's right. Yeah, I, I found that myself when I was first uh, graduated seminary. I taught at a Christian uh, high school, and I was teaching a Bible and doctrine class. I think it was eighth grade, eighth graders. And uh, usually uh, every year, about half of the class had never heard of the bodily resurrection, yeah. Um, at least as being a core doctrine of Christianity, uh, they didn't they didn't know that. I remember there was one, Sadducees, yeah, yeah. And there was one young lady. Uh, she was very very smart, and um, I think she actually went to uh, PCA Presbyterian Church in America, um, and she argued against me. Like she stood I... up and like wanted to go toe to toe that I was wrong, uh, because surely you know her church she would have been taught this sort of thing, and it, it just struck her as awkward and bizarre. Right. <laughs> um, I did eventually win her over to my position. Huzzah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but uh, it was a fun memory. Uh, so, yeah, flesh, bones, and all thing appertaining to perfection of man's nature. Uh, biblically, of course, you can think of Thomas, you know, I need to see the, yes, the, yes. the side. Uh, Jesus says, I have flesh and bones. Um, I'm not like a spirit. <laughs> He's eating stuff, right? He's got a barbecue on the, on the beach with, with Peter and John. Like, yeah, spirits don't eat stuff. That's right. Yeah. yeah. And so, again, uh, something that maybe later Episcopalian or Anglicans um, somehow decided to get confused about, but <laughs> but it's right here, right at the very beginning, very clear, um, and again, would connect with the, the, the creeds that it will be affirmed as well. You know, this all stands together. Um, Article 5, the Holy Ghost also fairly short um the holy ghost proceeding from the father and the son mm -hmm. is of one substance majesty and glory with the father and the son very and eternal god so affirmation of the full deity of the holy spirit uh, completes the trinitarian doctrine also a western augustinian view isn't it yes the okay is definitely there yes yeah and that that's come up for a discussion, you know, maybe in the last 50 or 60 years. But was that ever even on anyone's mind? Was that of any interest to, to kind of re, reopen the filioque debate uh, in earlier Anglicanism? You know, I, I've never, ever seen it, <laughs> honestly. Um, and you're absolutely right. It has become, uh, a, 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 again, I think this comes out of the ecumenical movement of, of the last 50 or 60 years. Um, there's, 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 I believe among some people that if we could just get rid of the filioque, um, 
then the East and West would 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 be together again. Um, and I, I think that's perhaps a, a very naive idea of what actually separates, um, for instance, the, the Anglican way from um, the, the, the East Orthodox Church. I, there, there are a number of issues there. Um, and this is kind of just the big, the, the sort of the tip of the iceberg of that kind of a thing. Yeah, no, I think that's right. Um, it would certainly be the case that um, if one affirmed the full deity of the spirit, but was not solidly convinced of the, the filioque, and, and that means the, the clause that says he proceeds from the father and the son, um, let's say, you, you know, you just weren't sure about that. I don't think that the Anglican doctrine means that you're necessarily a heretic. It's not to be taken in that degree. But it's just the the consensus of the Anglican theologians themselves is that they believed in that. They were setting that forth um, and would want to convince you of that. Um, but, you know, if you encountered a Christian who wasn't so sure about that, well, you would work with them in charity. Um, you know, you try to, to bring them along to a full understanding. But it just wasn't an issue that the Anglicans were 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 uncertain on or, or were trying to get rid of. They, they happily affirmed it. Uh, with the rest of the Western Church, and and it's in the Athanasian Creed as well. That's uh, right. It's 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 repeated again as the mark of uh, as a mark of the Catholic faith. Mm -hmm. Um. So for them, um, it, it you know, yeah, they they you know very reasonably thought they were right. Um. <laughs> and so why why would why would we not put that in? I um. And and I think you can make a very strong argument that the biblical evidence is 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 on the side of of, of the okay. Um, yeah. Uh, so yeah, no, I think it makes perfect sense. It's there, and you know, part part of part of conforming um, is uh, going. Well, I don't know if I totally understand or agree absolutely with that. Um, but uh, the uh, the articles of religion are attempt to present the biblical religion um, in a way that deals with the controversies that were swirling at the time. And this uh, is there's nothing here that endangers my soul to believe, and so. Um, I conform. Mm -hmm. I, I mean, yeah. I did. All right, uh, Article 6. Now we're moving into the scripture. So we, we've covered doctrine of God, moving now into the knowledge of God. Um, and I won't read all of this. It's quite, <laughs> quite long. <laughs> but highlight a few key things. Scripture contains all things necessary to salvation. Yes. And so whatsoever is not read therein, nor may be proved thereby, is not to be required of any man, that it should be believed as an article of faith, or be thought requisite or necessary to salvation. Such so, an important paragraph. Yeah. So here we have one articulation of what people will call sola scriptura. Right. Now, it, it may be a little bit different in presentation than what, what some who use that language would, would say, but it's essentially getting at this point. Um, everything you need, everything necessary to be saved, uh, right. it, it's got to be in the Bible. <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> so if you don't read it in the Bible or you can't prove it by the Bible then you can't require people to hold that as a necessary doctrine for salvation. 
which is important because that's also regulatory on the articles themselves. Yeah. Right? So the argument they're making here is that the articles themselves pass this test. Yes. Which is a really important thing. That's um, right. Yeah, no, that paragraph is, I mean, wonderful um, and liberating and just such an exciting thing to read. Um, and, and one of the things I bring people to often when they want to know, well, what what is the heart of the Anglican way? Um, it, that kind of has to be the heart, in my opinion, that paragraph. And then everything kind of flows out of that. Right. You can see a distinction here, what's read in the scripture and what's proved by the scripture. Um, sometimes people will criticize sola scriptura and they'll say, well, you know, you the, the Trinity is not in the Bible or, <laughs> you know, oh, so yes, yes. it doesn't say the word Trinity. Yeah. Some of these yes. doctrines that we hold to be so important, they're not they're not read in the Bible. Um, but that's why that second clause is there. But they are proved uh, by the Bible. Right. You, you take multiple verses and put them together. And the logical conclusion of that is also the teaching in Scripture. Right. Um, now, what about all these traditions that we love, Richard? I mean, we've got uh, the church calendar. We've got the, the vestments we wear. Um, those aren't all from the Bible. So so what are Anglicans view about all that stuff? Well, I think that's one of those really useful things, um, you know, what, to kind of figure out what the logic of the book is and the logic of the what the church is doing. Um, you go to the, the prefaces of the Book of Common Prayer is a really great place to start. Um, and you get a sense of uh, that, uh, and, and in Cramer's own words, um, that uh, traditions that support and uh, are edifying um, can be retained and should be retained. Um, and ones that are not or go against scripture should be abolished. And mm -hmm. so that was the sort of the, the careful balance of the Anglican Reformation. Um, and it should still be the, the guiding force um, for how Anglicans think about worship and A tradition wouldn't be necessary for salvation. Right. That's right. And, and that's why uh, later on in the articles, it says, you know, other churches, they, they can have other traditions. You know, we're, we're not, right. we're not saying everyone has to have the same, but, but if a tradition is good, if it's helpful, if it's promoting of the gospel, um, then we retain it and we use it and you should follow the ones in your church. I think that's a distinctive Anglican feature, right? We, yeah. We're going we're gonna to make some rules. All right, these are the ones. We're going to do these. <laughs> um, it, it's not the case that everyone gets to pick their own traditions as they want. No anarchy. But the way that that doesn't override the scripture principle is that we're not claiming they're necessary for salvation. That's right. Yeah. Uh, that, yeah that's if you don't wear a, if you, you like, you know, not wearing a, if you didn't wear it, don't wear a surplus in the chancel. It doesn't mean you're going to hell. <laughs> that's right. <laughs> and, and that's that, important. That's really, actually, really, really a, a important doctrine. Super important distinction. And one that I think probably people on both sides, the Protestant Catholic divide, are, are often quite uh, weak on. You know, the idea is either you do everything or you're absolutely going to hell and sin out of the faith. Or um, the idea is, well, that's what they say. So we won't allow any 
any human tradition, you know, any any extra stuff because of that concern. Um, and here we see a, a divide, that which is necessary for salvation. Uh, that's got to be proven from the scriptures. That's right. And, and that distinction is really helpful, uh, I found, in terms of people coming from evangelical backgrounds or from uh, you know, you know, uh, non-denominational backgrounds, they come in and, and it's a whole new world for them. Uh, but making sure they understand uh, that distinction is super, super helpful. And also pointing out that their own church they left absolutely has a tradition within it. The question is, is that tradition written down? Is it agreed upon? Can we look at it? Can we see it? Can we hold it in our hands and know what actually is required of us? Um, and that is another great way in which the Anglican way gives them uh, tools and peace of mind in which their other traditions um, do not. Yeah. All right. Then we have the books of the canon listed. It it just lists the Old Testament books, which I think is interesting. It shows you there really was no controversy over the New Testament content, at least uh, at the time of the articles being written. Um, mm. So so they only need to write out the Old Testament. Um and you can see them there. It's the standard Protestant canon. Some of the names may surprise people. You know, what, what's Ezra's? Okay, that, that's Ezra Nehemiah. Um, and boy, wouldn't you have loved to be able to use this for your seminary class? You know, the four greater prophets, the 12 lesser prophets. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I, my professors were not so lenient. I had to, to get the order of all those minor prophets. That's right. That's right. <laughs> <laughs> So there you go. And then we've got this really interesting and important section on the Apocrypha. So it says the other books, as Jerome saith. So appealing to Jerome, uh, the early church historian and translator, um, the other books the church doth read, for example, of life and instruction of manners, but yet doth it not apply them to establish any doctrine. And then it lists these apocryphal books. Um, now, this was a really big issue when I was becoming Anglican. Um, to what degree do I accept that? And to what degree um, can I put into practice? You know, because mm -hmm. this is something that more modern evangelicals, it really doesn't even come up. <laughs> Now, it, it actually wasn't uniquely Anglican at the time. Um, no. uh, I believe also, again, the Belgic Confession says pretty much the same thing. Um, right. So, um, and Lutherans as well. Uh, we're going to retain these apocryphal books for the purpose of reading and reading for certain goals, but not other goals. Um, so we can read them for examples and how people lived. Uh, and that can be both, I think, moral and historic, right? It's good just to right. see how it was happening, even if you don't want to imitate it. <laughs> right. uh, and then instruction and manners. Um, again, it, it's setting the historical context, uh, what would have been normal. And also, I think, the background of the New Testament. Um, right. The New Testament is not merely like, okay, uh, we're back from Persia, we've reestablished the kingdom, and then boom, here's Jesus. Yeah. You know, there had been quite a bit of time had passed, and um, various traditions had cropped up. You know, Jesus' parents, they go to the Feast uh, of Dedication, or I right. Jesus himself goes to the Feast of Dedication. Well, that's a, uh, that's a custom and a feast that comes up after the close of the Old Testament, really. Right, um, and, and you really can't understand that that, you know, people think he's the next Hasmonean king, 
um, unless you have, you know, for, a little bit of first Maccabees under your belt. Yeah. Yeah. Um, what does that mean? That's right. Yeah. So that's why we read these books. Um, right. Now, Richard, when, when we read, when we see this verb read in Anglican documents of the time, what does that mean? So the read there is going to be in public worship. Yeah. Um, and so you, it's, it's, it's really important um, that, uh, and not just in public worship, it's also in the homilies, the book of homilies also quote um, yep. from, from these as well. Um, so it, but specifically read here means public worship. Um, and, you know, we spoke about how the book of common prayer and the articles work in tandem. And this is a great example of that um, where the lectionary of the book of common prayer, the, 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 old lectionary and unfortunately if you if you pull a a modern cambridge 1662 off the shelf they use the 19th century lectionary um and the american lectionaries uh, uh basically since 1892 have been a disaster um all the way through the rcl and all that um but in 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 the classic book of common prayer lectionary um you get a a big dose of the apocrypha specifically in life and instruction of manners so you get a lot of the book of wisdom um you get a lot of, of the wisdom literature from um uh, uh from this list um because the prayer book is putting into practice very much this very idea that the way the main way we use the apocrypha is for example of life and instruction of manners yeah and, and it also edits too i mean it's careful about what it what it what what it what it what it particularly goes through but it does expect this to be read publicly um in in church yeah yeah and that reading um it particularly shows up in morning and evening prayers at certain right. times of the year um i think that's largely lost today because so few people are actually doing that right you know i mean if, if no one's ever actually in a morning prayer service with other people <laughs> then this this doesn't have a whole lot of impact on them but right. yeah you would hear it read now um I do think history would vindicate that if you're not reading them, then they will be lost entirely. Yeah, I think that's right. Well, um, well put. Yeah. And, and that's something I've wrestled with because I think, well, why do I even need to bother? Right. I'm not getting doctrine from them. Uh, they're not really my favorite books. Let's be honest. If I'm making my personal Bible plan, these are well, well towards the back end. Sure. Um, but then I have to just admit what, well, but I don't even know them, right? I haven't have such little acquaintance with these books because they have totally fallen out of use amongst most Protestants and certainly evangelicals. Right. Um, but it's worth knowing that like no one printed an English Bible into the 19th century without them in them. Huh. I mean, that includes like the Geneva Bible. Yeah. Right. So, I mean, they, this isn't like, like, you know, uh, some kind of weird, I mean, you mentioned that this is very a common Protestant practice. I mean, this was this also has deep, deep uh, uh, Catholic roots. I mean, this was this was an argument going back and forth within the the, the within the church. Um, I mean, they're they're even you know, it's entirely possible if uh, you know, for instance, if Cardinal Cajetan had been at Trent, this may very well might have been Rome's position. Um, yeah. But you know, people he he died before the council um, and 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 it didn't get there. So again, this is this is um, uh, very much one of the 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 the, the major, one of the one of the going concerns uh, of the church and it's actually kind of weird that we're in a space in which the the polarization of roman catholic and protestant has made it so roman catholics can claim these books as being 
canonical and Protestants, because they associate them with Roman Catholicism, have lost all connection with them. And and uh, I think this is a much, you know, an excellent corrective to that um, yeah. modern bad trend. Since they don't establish doctrine, then um, they can't be considered, you know, holy, holy scripture canonical in that sense of the Old and New Testaments that are otherwise, you know, being used. Um, we're, we're not going to the Apocrypha for the things necessary for salvation, which right. we've already stated, but we are using them for other purposes, and we're recognizing they have had a place in the history of the church. Um, I mean, that's why Jerome gets the, the name check here, um, even as the articles are, are giving a, you know, a secondary position to the Apocrypha. They're, they're trying to defend that choice as a traditional choice. As, as, as an antique choice, yes. That's right. Um, and I think people that are acquainted with the early church fathers, they will admit that Jerome was, you know, the more skilled and authoritative textualist. Uh, you know, he knew his scriptures much better than anyone else in his day. Um, he's one of the only uh, church fathers that's competent in Hebrew, really. That's right. Um, goes, goes to the Holy Land. That's right. Yeah. <laughs> And so while in many, many issues, we would probably side with Augustine over and against Jerome uh, on the topic of canon, we we side with Jerome. We think he had the better argument. And it shows you that it was a live question at the time that that was going back and forth, even between two giants like Augustine and, and Jerome. That's right. Yep. Um, and then, yeah, the New Testament, it's not in controversy, so they don't even feel the need to list the books. <laughs> they just say the books of the New Testament as commonly received, we receive. Um, and that's pretty remarkable because you would think for Christianity, um, you'd think the big debate would be, well, which books make it into the New Testament? You know, that would be where all the fighting is. And really, there's no fighting about that. that that's settled by the second, third century and no major Protestant denomination really disagrees about the New Testament. Right. Yeah. I mean, people people throw shade at Luther all the time, um, and they'll say crazy things, particularly uh, dishonest uh, Romans will say things like that. He he cut James out of his Bible, and, and but um, this is patently false. <laughs> it's just, yeah. just not true. Um, and uh, yeah, so that's, <laughs> you hear that silliness, it's none of it's true. It's all right. Yeah, I mean Luther Luther is given to bouts of passion. He he is not yes. impassable. So, <laughs> yeah, um he certainly made statements about the book of James which we would not countenance, but but when it came time to officially list the canon, yeah, the, and the translate same, it. Yeah, and translate. <laughs> yeah, the same New Testament is there for him as right. for That's right. <laughs> Okay, Article 7, the Old Testament. Again, I was a little surprised by this. Oh, we, we're going to do another another article here and uh, just to talk about the Old Testament. And this is about the doctrine of the Old Testament. So we can tell, oh, okay, there was someone at the time who they were arguing against. The Old Testament is not contrary to the New for both in the Old and New Testament, everlasting life is offered to mankind by Christ, who is the only mediator between God and man, being both God and man. So there's a strong assertion that the Old Testament is Christian, 
um, that Jesus was the mediator for the Old Testament as well as the New. And then the article continues, and now you're saying, wow, I mean, they were dealing with dispensationalists, that they were dealing with theonomists <laughs> back here. What let's look at this. Um, so Article 7 says, wherefore they are not to be heard, which feign that the old fathers did look only for transitory promises. Um, so if you say, well, the Abraham and Isaac and Moses, they're just doing earthly stuff. You know, it's all about the land. And then this article says, no, we, we reject right. um, Although the law given from God by Moses as touching ceremonies and rites do not bind Christian men, nor the civil precepts thereof ought of necessity to be received in any commonwealth. So again, there's your negatives. Right. We don't hold to the ceremonies and rites of Moses, and we don't hold the civil precepts are necessary. Yet, notwithstanding, no Christian man whatsoever is free from the obedience of the commandments which are called moral. So you have obviously a big, uh, a big context there, a big debate that you can read between the lines. Right. The kinds of things they were rebuking, rebu uh, rebuking. Yeah, that's absolutely right. I mean, the, this this gets to the uh, the conflicts um, brewing um, with the uh, Anabaptists. Um, so that's definitely a part of what this has aimed at. Um, and yeah, it's just it's. I mean, in some ways, it's ref it's, it's a, a, a lovely presentation of uh, you know covenantal theology. Yeah, absolutely. You've got Christ working the whole time. I think the Anabaptists are definitely one view. Probably also the very early remnants of, or early, uh, not remnants, but the early appearances of uh, what we would call Puritanism. Sure, um, sure. You know, I'm I'm very pro-Puritan in general, but um, that word covers a wide range <laughs> of people. Yes. And, Tons uh, of people. <laughs> in, in my reading, it, it's not the case um, that it started off good and went bad. Um, I think it's probably the opposite. I think it started off really crazy <laughs> and then it, it sort of settled and you got certain parties that were more amenable and consistent with the trend, the, the dominant trends and then others who weren't. Um, but I know pretty early on in the Elizabethan era, um, you do have Puritan groups who are basically saying every single ritual and rite must be positively derived from the scriptures. That's um, right. You have them saying we must follow the Mosaic law for earthly commonwealth, um, so much so that they won't submit to rulers who they deem are out of line with that. Hooker deals with a lot of that. That's right. Yeah. Yeah. Hooker goes hook and you know, tooth and thong. I mean, and that's a lot of that's Cartwright. Yeah, Cartwright, Travers, and others. Yeah, um, yeah you see that in, in several of the Elizabethan bishops. They're having to write against this issue. Um, and so I would imagine this article has already got some of those ideas in mind. That's right. And it's funny how the old errors perhaps are not around anymore, but the new errors are also relevant here. So yes. I, I mentioned dispensationalism, right? That, right? that wasn't on anyone's radar at the time, but no. 
But my reading of this article would be that a really strict classic dispensationalist would not uh, want to affirm this. Yeah, I mean, it's, it is funny. I mean, dispensationalism is such a new phenomenon within within Christianity, but you're absolutely right. Um, it still um, is covered very uh, uh, effectively by this article. Yeah. Um, <clears throat> yeah, the Old Testament fathers were, were looking for Christological promises. You see a lot of this in... Um, uh, in editions of the King James, where they have little glosses above the chapters, um, what it is just, uh, you know, just assumes that in terms of its explanation of what what the what the chapters hold. Um, so yeah, that, that's another connection within another formulary. Yeah. All right, and then our last one for today, number eight, the three creeds. We already mentioned this, uh, but we'll we'll go over it again. The Nicene, Athanasian. Um, and then what is commonly called the Apostles' Creed, uh, ought thoroughly to be received and believed, for they may be proved by most certain warrants of Holy Scripture. A um, couple things that stood out to me. Um, this is the first appearance of what will be a common expression in the articles and the Book of Common Prayer, commonly called. <laughs> Um, and, and that usually indicates some recognition that, okay, it, this is not the most precise name. Yes. <laughs> um, we don't think the apostles themselves wrote this creed, but that's what everyone calls it. So fine. <laughs> right. Um, and, and you'll see that again for the Athanasian Creed. It'll say that in the prayer book. It'll say commonly called Athanasian Creed. Um, I think that gets used for Ash Wednesday, right? Commonly called Ash Wednesday. Um, so it, it's an expression you'll you'll see. It just means they're noting that that's not really the most accurate or technical way to do it, but it's also not so offensive that they feel the need to to bucket and get rid of it. You find that, for instance, in the listings of Christmas, right? Yeah. Commonly called Christmas. Um, yeah, again, you're absolutely right. It, that continuity with the past, but also just, you know, leaning that, you know, the important thing, most important thing at Christmas is the nativity of our Lord, right? Yeah. So it's, it's a highlighting of things, yes. Um, so these three creeds, the big ones, Nicene, Athanasius, and Apostles, ought to be thoroughly, that's important, right? The whole yeah. thing, don't pick and choose, thoroughly to be received and believed. <laughs> so, so there's no crossing the fingers, no just ceremonial here. You need to believe them. But why? What's the grounding and the rationality? This is also huge. Yes. Uh, because for they may be proved by most certain warrants of Holy Scripture. So it's tradition, sure, except it's not really tradition because it can be proved from Scripture. And so if something can be proved from Scripture, then it is treated as equivalent to Scripture because it is a scriptural authority. That's right. It's, it's, a, it's, a, it's another way or, or uh, uh, yeah, it's a way in which Scripture is written on the heart, right? It can be memorized. Like one can't memorize the entire Scriptures, but one can memorize these creeds and hold that and know uh, what is the, the biblical and Catholic faith. Yeah. That's why it's so good to use them in regular worship. Yes. Um, because then they just get into you. You memorize them from a young age. Um, 
and uh, it becomes normal and regular. Uh, if you never use the creeds, and then one day it's your job to tell everyone at church that they're obligated to believe them, <laughs> you're going to have a hard time. Yes. <laughs> you're say, Wait a minute. I've never heard this before. What are you talking about? Um, so, yeah, regular use will make that a lot easier. Oh, yeah. It also helps children as they prepare for confirmation. And then if the children are constantly saying um, the Lord's Prayer, the Ten Commandments and the creeds, um, then it is not a, a, a uh, horrible, it is not a hard thing to ask them to recite them. That's right. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And here again, we see these being laid down as boundary markers for Anglican doctrine. Um, it shouldn't be uh, even conceivable that an Anglican wouldn't wouldn't believe in some of these creeds that they're they're laid down there as as core uh, tenets of Christianity uh, as biblical teaching. Right. And everybody has creeds they believe, right? I mean, if you ask someone, what do you believe? And they go, well, I believe. And then they start saying things. Those things, as as I'm sure you've heard before and I have heard, can be pretty wild. Um, <laughs> from, uh, and so they have a creed. The question is, is that creed biblical? Is it is it proved by most certain warrants of Holy Scripture? And the wonderful thing about these three is that one can along with the saints who came before us, hold on to something that is truly proved by most certain warrants of Holy Scripture. Yeah. So, all right. Well, very good. Hopefully um, that was a helpful introduction to the articles. We went a little longer than probably normal, but uh, that'll be good for me in preparing <laughs> how many articles to try to cover <laughs> in the future. Well, we were off for a while, too, so give a little extra. Yeah, catch up. But uh, it's yeah. good to get back together to hear your voice, Richard. Hope things Indeed. go well for you guys down in Connorsville. Um, and thanks for listeners out there. Hope that you are enjoying this discussion. Indeed. And one little bit of housekeeping, uh, uh, listeners. Uh, our goal, uh, and we're going to set ourselves for this, is to have a, a podcast a month. Um, so God willing, we'll be getting back together um, uh, in February to uh, broadcast again. All right. Well, thanks so much, Richard. God bless you, Stephen. Take care.